welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. Today we continue our second season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of traditional African American preaching. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Two men, un autus enai pistus tus legontas tria esti ta aitia, tus auto gar esti di a pistoioman exoton apodexon, esti de tauta phronesis kai arete kai eunoia. All right, Tim, what is traditional African American preaching? It's a style of preaching that has its roots in the days of slavery and goes up through the Jim Crow era. There are more contemporary forms of African-American preaching, and there are a variety of preaching styles within various denominations, past and present. But we're just highlighting some of the general themes found in the traditional African-American preaching that we've discovered in the scholarly record by rhetoricians. Now, at the heart of this form of preaching was the preacher. Uh, He was the pastor, he was a spiritual leader, uh, and he was a church builder, but he was also way more than this. That's right. He became known as a teacher, facilitating adult education, and being a leading proponent and exemplar of education. He became a source of news to disseminate information from and relating to the preacher's community. Now, it's been hard to examine a lot of African-American preaching, uh, traditional African-American preaching, because sermons were not readily prepared by manuscript. Uh, They certainly weren't recorded. Uh, due to, you know, the technology uh, not being available. And most black sermons were more uh, dialogic-based, and so manuscripts don't really capture the full essence of what actually happened at these events. So, Tim, can you, uh, what, what do we know? We know that the emotional appeal was the primary driver. The goal was to arouse the emotions, to cause shouting, excitement, and complete emotional abandon. Yeah, as one scholar wrote, the preacher's mission is to, quote, to fan the smoldering emotions of his hearers into flames. The ministers appealed most of all to fear and hope, but there are also appeals to common sense, pride, shame, pain, affection, hatred, love, and desire for happiness. And logic was there, but it played more of a supporting role to pathos. And as for ethos, formal education and training could be helpful to the preacher, but they were not readily necessary. Uh, The number one trait of the black uh, or African-American preacher was to be seen as a man of God. And I don't think this means that education was unimportant, but what was important was to be seen as a a person of God, which didn't necessarily require that uh, expensive or formal schooling or a a degree. And the topics of these sermons uh, were on life situations, practical matters relating to religion, economic issues, racial and international aspects of life, and they emphasized the fear of death and emphasized love. And of course, you know, they address the otherworldly. Yeah, being concerned with the hereafter, a belief in a better life for the humble in the world to come, and doctrinal or theological matters. On organization, uh, it's hard to find a good set organizational pattern used, uh, but there certainly were some consistent styles. Uh, one of which was being that in the beginning... Nice touch. Uh, thank you. Uh, the preacher uh, 
use the introduction to first present himself, to establish credibility, to establish ethos, and then to launch into the text. In the middle of the sermon was um, often the use of an extended description or recreation of a Bible story, which the audience was already familiar, but was told with a little bit of additional or new insight to maintain the interest and attention of the listeners. We found this example in one study about preachers in Georgia. Jesus told a story of a man who had perhaps been a bookkeeper for the king, and he stole, he absconded, he misplaced a million or more dollars in today's money. I don't know whether he had expensive girlfriends or played the horses with it or what, but it was gone, all gone. And in the end, it was truly a celebration. Uh, it might be tearful, it might be ecstatic, uh, but, in the, uh, but it's the high point, the end, at which the audience feels the strength of the point of the sermon, uh, fully embraces it, and celebrates the uh, moment as a, uh, shared as a group. And however the sermon was organized, the goal was to establish a situation in which the deep feelings of the preacher and the people may be expressed in a climate of acceptance and faith. Amen. Now, Tim, on to style. Okay, first, language. Successful preachers use the in-language of their congregation using black language, figures, and experiences, and African-American preachers who preached in white language to black audiences were not seen as credible. Then there's the delivery, which is a huge part of this genre. The gestures' appearances are spectacular, bombastic, and dramatic. One scholar writes that black preachers stomp, jump, wipe their face with a towel, pace and high step run in place, which all expresses the work and labor needed to bring forth the word of God. And then there's the voice, which is one of authority, kind of, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, and the voice is also very dynamic by how it's used. Uh, at, one po- at one moment, the, uh, the minister is quiet, and the next moment, storming, raising uh, the volume. Uh, other times, the voice is very gravelly, very grainy. Uh, one scholar writes that the gravelly voice shows that the preacher is really straining and, and working after to get, uh, to get that divine revelation out in order to uh, spread the message of the gospel. Like with the physical delivery. Yeah, that really kind of exhibiting the, um, the, the toil needed physically and with your voice. And some preachers use a, a bit of a sing-song voice that oscillates from uh, speaking to singing almost as if they're overcome by the divine spirit. And some say this kind of uh, uh, move originated from the tonal nature of African uh, African languages. But there's a bit more to this delivery. Uh, Early African-American preaching uh, is characterized by a number of delivery techniques, uh, one of which is the cadence, the rhythm of the preacher. One scholar uh, wrote, uh, despite Martin Luther King's formal training in language, his national status and reputation, he was heard as a soul brother, a down-home Baptist preacher. And preachers used a rhythmic voice to arouse emotion. Yeah, it got everyone caught up in that uh, in an emotional moment, often towards the conclusion. Uh, I found this quote. One scholar wrote, uh, it's like, quote, uh, being lost in a whirlpool of emotional ejaculation. Now, Tim... I was a little bit surprised by that phrase, so I had to do some uh, uh, looking and see what the good people over at the Oxford English Dictionary said, and you know what they said? What did they say? They said that that was an outdated term uh, that means language comes out suddenly and quickly, and I think that kind of reflects the uh, <laughs> the old nature of scholarship that we found. A lot of this is is um, 
50, 60 year old scholarship that we used. All right. So the second point on delivery uh, is the interjection. It's a bit of a short, huh? It's not necessarily a word. It's not necessarily expression. It's a little bit of both. Um, it's more of an audible marker is the best way I saw it described. Uh, and I found an example. We're not very good at this, uh, but we found a video clip. It's a Bishop Noel Jones delivering the good word. You can hear the rhythm, the musicality of his voice, and that interjection that we're talking about. So we'll play a few seconds of that. And move with the radiance of somebody that's got real power. Come on, Pat, let's have some church. When you can walk out and understand that this ain't just about God, but this is God in me, and I represent God in my home. Another technique is the call and response. This practice is one that really differentiates the black church from the others. The preacher calls for the audience, interjects themselves into the sermon. Examples might be, amen, that's right, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, or have mercy. And so in no way was this actually disruptive, though, right? Not at all. It actually helps keep a connection with the audience, and at times helps the preacher along, giving him support, and the absence can suggest disapproval of the message. So, Dave, what's your take-home point? Here's my take-home point, Tim. Uh, traditionally, um, African-American uh, preaching, and I guess we should mention, uh, that has been labeled by various scholars and historians, uh, use different terms to, to describe this. Uh, the, the preaching is not necessarily a simple organization and presentation of religious matters in a lecture-style format. The audience isn't one who just kind of sits passively by and absorbs the information. The point is to feel the message, not necessarily to hear the message. Uh, it's really to take it all in rather than just kind of sit idly by. Uh, and it's also about taking care of the needs of the congregation, addressing their experiences, uh, incorporating those experiences in an intellectual and emotionally exhilarating way that touches on the congregation's deepest, deepest emotions so they can look forward to a heaven free from the bigotry, pain, sorrow, and death of this world uh, to offer an escape from the, quote, impo uh, an impossible world, as it was described. And while formal education can help, the delivery is the real trick of this trade, I think we found. Uh, and you can't forget uh, getting a little help from God. That's right. And certainly times have changed and styles have evolved, uh, but this is what the scholarship has told us about the uh, traditional African-American preaching. Tim, you got a take-home point? I've got two. First, this brief account of some general themes runs the risk of trafficking in the same stereotypes of African-American preaching that are found in some Hollywood films. But as President Obama said of his experience in Trinity Church in Chicago, quote, like other black churches, Trinity's services are full of raucous laughter and sometimes body humor. They're full of dancing, clapping, screaming, and shouting that may seem jarring to the untrained ear. Secondly, many African-American preachers will have studied homiletics in divinity school, as did the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he attended Crozier Theological Seminary. But the language, the style, and the delivery that he and other dynamic pastors eventually deliver is largely learned while attending African Methodist Episcopal churches, churches or churches of the National Baptist Convention. Amen. We good? We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? 
Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Oh, goody, a rhetorical device. Today's rhetorical device is the apostrophe. This is when a speaker addresses to some abstract idea, inanimate object, or to someone who is not there. It is often very effective in climatic situations, such as Claudius's impassioned speech in Hamlet. And the apostrophe can be seen in African-American preaching and in other preaching as well, uh, also in non-secular contexts as well. Uh, in this, the rhetor speaks directly to God for help, praise, or just to express joy. Uh, Tim, you got an example? You've always got tasty examples. I've got one, but the speaker is not African-American or a preacher, and he speaks not to God. But topically, it would have done very well in church, as it comes from the holy sonnets of John Donne. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. Okay, Tim, who's uh, sponsoring this episode? I think you're really going to like this sponsor, and it may actually be helpful in choosing future episodes. It's the Natural AI Institute. Thanks to remarkable advancements in artificial intelligence, all manner of tasks that used to require human decision-making are now being done by machines at twice the speed and a fraction of the cost. The downside, however, comes when the job you've been doing for decades is suddenly outsourced to an AI decision tree. That's where the Natural AI Institute comes in. Our short course in digital decision-making will teach you a two-step method to take any situation plagued by gray areas and quickly reduce it to black and white. By applying our patented incremental graphical value scale to any question, you can quickly score items on a scale from 1 to 10. Next, designate scores 1 through 5 as black and scores 6 through 10 as white, and you have instantly converted a complex situation to a simple choice of either or. Don't be the next one to let your job be outsourced to a computer. Come to the Natural AI Institute to learn to think like a machine and quickly provide simple solutions to complex problems. Find us at the, on the web at naturalai.com. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been Rhetoric O-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library. <laughs>